Hail och Sal. It's been four damn years since I spent the holidays at home. By home, of course, I mean home home, not this little corner of the world that I happen to migrate to. But that's all fine. That's my own fault. Nobody cares anyway, but this is nevertheless a time of the year where my chronic homesickness bothers me just a little bit more, and my very much involuntary, accidental, but nevertheless fully embraced Norwegianness itches me like a phantom limb. Christmas, or should I say Jul, is a particularly cherished holiday in Scandinavia, and to many people particularly difficult, partially because it's held in such high esteem in our culture. To many people, their inability to live the picture-perfect image of the holiday feels like a shortcoming, or even a painful reminder of their own outsider status. Therefore, there are also many Scandinavians who harbor a certain loathing for this particular holiday, and though I do not count myself as one of them, it is easy to understand why. Having lived in the US for quite a while, but with no relationship to any US holidays, Scandinavian Christmas feels a bit like, I would imagine, Thanksgiving feels like to Americans, only also with Halloween and the regular Christmas all rolled into the same package. Though we tend to be a rather autonomous pack of people, we have one or two times a year where family lies in the absolute center, and this is one of those occasions. Therefore, it is obviously painful for anybody who lacks that particular presence in their life for whatever reason, and many of those people would rather not even be reminded of this most sacred occasion, and who can blame them, really. It's not entirely unheard of in Scandinavia to invite people who would otherwise be alone into one's home. I always wondered what it must be like to be a stranger in those sorts of situations, because Christmas in many regards is such an intimate holiday. But due to recent events, I no longer need to wonder. Because I myself am far from home, um, and I suppose have nowhere else to go, uh, I find myself in a situation where I've been taken in by the hidden people. There's no other way to say it, really. It just uh, just happened one day when I was out walking. So I do very much expect that I'll be celebrating the holidays down here, underground, in between the tunnels and stations of the subway system. Though, not quite, actually, because it's, uh... I don't know if you understand, but it's kind of neither here nor there. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise, necessarily, because wherever people go, the hidden people, the garbage gnomes, the huldufolk, the elves, whatever you want to call them, are never far behind. I was impressed by the shared cultural features between our mutual diasporas. Obviously, these were huldufolk of Scandinavian descent, discernible even from their accent, though a certain degree of creolization is to be expected, I suppose. And let me tell you, never before have I been treated with such generosity or such opulence. There are tables decked with the most costly of dishes. We've got cavefish lutefisk, rat belly roast, cured and steamed raccoon ribs, pigeon ham and squirrel sausage. They even dished up some kind of prison wine, spiritually similar to the Yule beer that I knew from home. Their courtesy knows no bounds. I even get to sit in the high seat beside their king. I will not deny that I was a little worried at first, especially because they keep saying that I am to be his bride, even though I already tried to tell them many times that I'm a happily married man. Married to a woman, no less, but apparently my certificate is not considered valid down here. I was also asked to say, I mean, I really want to express that I am healthy and that I am here by my own free will and that you should not come uh, 
quote-unquote looking for me, wink wink. Especially do not ring any church bells within listening distance of a certain manhole cover outside of the Ukrainian butcher on 2nd Ave by St. Mark's. The 2nd Ave by St. Mark's. So don't, wink wink, come looking for me. So yes, that is totally my own wish. Now anyway, as you probably know, I'm Erik Storsen, and you're listening to the Brute Norse Podcast, where we walk backwards into the future. And this is the Subterranean Yuletide Special 2020. started carving out the intro for this episode, I was afraid it was going to be all sappy or come across as some condescending charity porn, paying indulgence for the gluttonous sins we're about to commit. As if these issues can be spirited away by momentary and half-assed reminders of the suffering of the world, so that we may feel a little bit less guilty about our own compulsively narcocratic and maniacal consumption. Fuck all of that shit. This is an episode produced in complete solidarity with those who do not fit in with polite society but are nonetheless the unsung heroes, the unspoken ingredients, the butter in the porridge of this numinous phase of the calendar year. Because the Yuletide is also for the outsiders, the freaks and the scum, a season of subterranean entities, fence-sitters and coal-biters, and the dwellers on the threshold. One of the things I like about Norwegian folklore is the ample room it leaves for the misfits. It doesn't try to force them into society at large, but accepts that there are lowly creatures, human or not, that not only serve an important purpose, but possess power and wisdom inaccessible to the squares and the conformists. In the Nordic area, there is no shortage of entities that go bump in the night, but never do the bumps seem more frequent or more loud than in the sacred Yuletide season. From the Baltic to the North Sea Basin, to the abominable North Atlantic, ghosts and goblins roamed the countryside, This was the season where the cold and hungry spirits of the ancestral dead would come to visit, expecting a solid night's sleep in the beds of the living, and tables decked with treats and comforts. It's strange to think that there were still a few people sleeping on the floor out of courtesy for the dead, in the midst of the roaring 1920s. The ambivalence of the historical Scandinavian winter feast is evident in the countless taboos associated with it. Everything was timed according to a strict schedule, and an endless list of do's and don'ts under threat from monstrous creatures and mischievous spirits, there to remind people to be wary of the heterodox witches brew of thousands of non-standardized local customs that people observed. In many cases, it seems as if holiday night walks were reserved for those with a death wish. And if you were dumb enough to go outside in the holy season, you might encounter a wee little man no bigger than three feet tall, but with the strength of eight men, willing and able to fuck you up for the remaining five minutes of your life. It is unclear if this little Yule goblin is related to the household gnomes, uh, abundant in the farms around Norway, who demanded to be treated well, especially on Christmas Eve, or you would perhaps treat them to a little meal. 
This character is a bit of a simplification because there were in fact many different kinds of household spirits all across Scandinavia, but this is the one who's stuck, it seems. This thing we call the Nissa or the Tunkal, depicted as small and jovial and dressed as a little peasant man, possessing the strength of eight men. If you appease him, he'll take care of you and your animals. But if you don't, he might leave or even cripple you. But as long as you were moderately decent, you were probably okay. That being said, there was no telling what might happen after dark on Christmas Eve. In some areas specifically, going to church on the holy night was really the only way to make sure that you wouldn't get screwed over by some demonic or subterranean force prone to go through people's houses. And to illustrate just that, I have one particular story to tell, roughly from the region of Hardanger in West Norway, about a family so pestered and persecuted by festive trolls that anywhere was good, as long as it wasn't home. It's the tale of the pussies on Kletta Farm. Yeah, you can laugh or wince, but that's what it's called anyway. And either way, I can promise that you've never seen pussy like this before. It happened on a Christmas Eve, many years ago, that a hunter came to the farm of Klette, near Rosendahl, and asked to spend the night. Well, you can't spend the night here, and neither are we for that matter, said the farmer, as he loaded up a heavy sled with all of their belongings. But it's Christmas Eve, said the hunter, scratching his head. Surely you're not. Exactly! Ain't you heard? That's when they come. They're on the loose, barked the farmer. Now the hunter was proper dumbfounded. Who? Who's on the loose? The pussies, you idiot. Every damn Christmas they come running down the mountain. Oh, now it's getting dark, and uh, before long I reckon this farm is going to be crawling with pussy. And now that it was mentioned, the hunter had indeed heard of these pussies before. But never had he seen such creatures with his own eyes, and was curious to know more. Say, how about I stay the night anyway, he asked the farmer. Well, that was alright, the farmer reckoned, but wanted nothing to do with it. And soon enough he set off into the night with his wife and children. They were worried about the lone hunter, as you can understand, but that was none of their business. The cabin was nice and warm and all, but the hunter was soon filled with regret. There was an area gloominess about. Even the hat on the bedpost and the wooden shoes seemed to glare at him mournfully, as if something dreadful was about to happen. But then he sat down and said the Lord's Prayer, and it seemed to help a little bit. Next, he stuffed his dog into the stove and crawled up on the loft, where he loaded his musket, and for a bullet he used an old silver button that he'd inherited from his grandfather. He had almost fallen asleep when he heard a strange racket outside the house. There was a hopping and a marching and all manner of peculiar noises. Then the door flung open, and a host of trolls spewed out from the night and into the cabin. Many they were, and strangely they carried themselves. These were surely the pussies that the farmer feared so much. They scurried around the house, sniffing around every nook and cranny. Here it smells like the blood of Christian men, a coarse voice decreed. The hunter reckoned that this was the grandfather of the lot. Yes, it does, cried the others, and were much suspicious. But when they found the old hunting dog stuck in the stove, they reckoned he must be the one who reeked so badly. Now the trolls began to cook and roast and deck the tables, and before long they all sat down for a proper yuletide meal. <laughs> Would you like some roast? The grandfather called to the dog, but the dog couldn't get out of the stove and couldn't answer either. 
Would you like some roast? He called again, tapping his toes impatiently, but again there was no verbal answer. The hunter realized that if he was going to act, he'd better do it now. He aimed his gun at Grandpa Pussy and pulled the trigger. Now you better believe there was a horrible racket. They skedaddled from their tables, wailing and screaming as they darted off into the night, pulling the grandfather between them. Ever since that fateful night, no pussy has ever been seen on Kletta Farm. But even to this day, you can still see the many tar crosses painted on the doors to serve as protection from the horrid pussies that once haunted the farm on Christmas Eve. Now, the term pussy deserves some explanation here. It's clear from later versions that people were confused about its application in this story. Pus in Norwegian is a term of endearment, often used as a term for a lover, or pus is also a word for a pussycat. It doesn't make a lot of sense to talk about trolls in such a fashion because they're not usually very endearing, but if I may be so bold as to have a guess at an etymology here, I would suggest that we're not talking about pus as a term of endearment, but pusa, perhaps as a bastardization of Old Norse puki. If so, then the story should be more suitably named The Devils on Kletta Farm. But that semantic nuance clearly wasn't understood by the time that the legend was recorded. It does, however, state the position that these folkloric creatures possessed in a Christian cosmology, though the austere conditions of the Scandinavian peasantry encouraged a sort of cooperative approach to forces that were not openly endorsed or appreciated in official religion. For the sake of their undying souls, of course, people resigned themselves to faith and devotion to the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, but those guys have better things to do than keeping your sorry ass alive in a landscape that is constantly trying to poison, harm, and kill you through starvation and exposure. Trolls and ogres perched in the mountainside crushed the hapless farm folk under massive rock slides just to make the time pass. And since you were at constant risk of insulting the peevish sentiments of the hidden folk, a man could scarcely sneak out for a delightful whiz in the fresh air without running the risk of pissing through the ceiling of their subterranean abodes, say into some elfin toddler's crib, and god knows what they might do to get even. As you understand, dealing with a trollish mob and negotiating with the Thursian Mafia was both necessary and unavoidable. Many Scandinavians cherish St. Lucy's Day on December 13th for its mystical procession of lights and the associated saffron buns. Lucy embodies light and hope in the midst of the blackest dark, which is suitable for the fact that St. Lucy's feast used to coincide with the darkest day of the year, the winter solstice, up until the adoption of the Gregorian calendar in 1700. However, the Lucy's Day celebrations you see in Scandinavia today are partially a modern reconstruction, which is fine and dandy, but quite different from her development in certain corners of Scandinavia. In the folk religiosity of pre-industrial Norway, Saint Lucy had mutated into a terrifying hag by the name of Lucy, more similar to something out of a John Carpenter film than this virgin of light who hid in people's chimneys, eager to taste and spoil the porridge if you dared leave it unattended. Like the regular Feast of St. Lucy, the long night of the subterranean Lucy was there to mark the end of labor for the holidays. After this there was no freshing, no spinning, brewing or baking, and no large fires in the house. Lucy long night between the 12th and 13th of December was also a time where animals could speak and express their grievances. 
Lucy herself could crawl down the chimney and harm those who broke one of the many associated taboos. In some parts, Lucy was the hostess of the Wild Hunt, variously called Ganfärd, Juleskreia or Julereia, or more famously Oskoreia around Norway. Oskoreia probably means uh, the terrifying ride or something along those lines. The Wild Hunt held particular currency in those regions of Norway with very strong traditions associated with the hidden people, and Lucy was sometimes tied into that whole mythology as the primordial mother of the hidden folk. In Christian Apocrypha associated with the story of Adam's first wife who hid her children from God, and whom God consequentially hid from mankind. As the leader of the Wild Hunt, Lucy and her retainers flew through the stormy winter night, or indeed were the storms of the winter night, its phantoms howling and tearing at the corners of the house. Again, there are a lot of versions depending on where you are in the country and in the region of Setestalen. You even find a bastardized version of Sigurd the Dragon Slayer riding with the Wild Hunt. But in many of these cases, it is some feminine subterranean figure who leads the host under various names or manifestations, much like the Alpine tradition surrounding Bersta. In Telemark, for example, it's another hag by the name of Guru Rysserova, which means a Guru horse ass. As for the riders or host itself, that can vary from region to region, but it's always a very questionable bunch, ranging from the usually subtle but mischievous hidden folk to hideous trolls or the ghosts of outlaws and criminals, fearing through the valleys and villages like spectral death squads. Whenever Oskorea stops at a farm, it wants to enter and eat all of the costly Yuletide fare and drink all the Yule beer, often occupying the house for a Christmas feast of its own, or flying off with the household or its animals. It can even move entire houses or simply carry them off with it. Sometimes the Oskore would kidnap your spirit in your sleep, and if your body happened to twist or turn while you were off in your sub-astral travels, your spirit, which in folkloric terms is also your breath, uh, would come back and be like, where the fuck is my nostrils? Where's my mouth? And then being lost and unable to enter your body again, you'd simply die. Presumably while your spectral form was trying to uh, re-enter your body through your ass or something. Which, by the way, the sources do not imply as far as I know, but, um, you know, I'm just reading between the lines, filling in the gaps. Horses were particularly popular victims of Oskorea's harassment. In those days, if you found your horse all fucked up on Christmas Day, it didn't take a folklorist to understand what was going on. If your horse was all spooked and sweaty all of a sudden, it was obvious that the wild hunt had taken it for a ride, and it was now traumatized by the gruesome things it had witnessed through the holy night. As an interesting aside, I came across one book that suggested a rational explanation for the leitmotif of the sweating, shivering horse in that horses were apparently given the yeasty slurry left over from the Christmas brew. In which case it's not really that spooky, it's just a severely hungover horse. The horse, of course, being a particularly powerful animal in the Nordic imagination, has always been treated differently than other barnyard beasts among the Scandinavian peasantry one that is definitely closer to the household than many of the others, and whom it was a particular sin to put down. Hence they would often hire gypsies, executioners, blacksmiths, or other marginal but ambivalently powerful figures to do the job. I suppose that the rationale behind the tradition of giving your horse alcohol poisoning has to do with the fact that Yule was not just a holiday for human beings. It was also a feast for the animals, who were supposed to be particularly well-treated and nicely fed and such. You even hear talk about amnesty for mice and other vermin during the holiday, whom undoubtedly snatched their share of any food offerings left for household goblins or dead ancestors in the periods and areas where this was still practiced. 
A significant contributor to this sort of mindset was obviously that it was considered very bad to run out of food during the holidays, but it also ought to be generously shared. Hopefully, the new year would continue as the last one ended. Now, in addition to its weird hang-up on horses, Oscorea, whether by glitch or design, had a bizarre habit of getting stuck in some of the locations that it haunted. Not just because it would go and sit in the proverbial slime seat and make itself at home and eat all your food and just never leave, but literally flying inside of stuff and not coming out. One tale alleges that the Oscure once flew inside a man's sauna while he was in the sauna. And his family was powerless to do anything but listen as the Oscure idiotically chanted the same phrase over and over again as it had its way with the poor fellow. In the morning when the Oscure finally had left, the bathhouse had been spattered with human flesh. Which, all things considered, is a very convenient location, if you're gonna have that sort of a mess in the first place. One interesting aspect of Oscorea is that it often has a specific point of origin, geographically speaking, which depends on the landscape, possibly corresponding with the direction from whence the winter storms would usually blow. But sometimes the origin of Oscorea is extremely specific, limited not just to the lay of the land, like the specific wind conditions of the valley that you're living in. I know one example where the Oscure is said to emerge from a certain peak, which also happens to hold a migration period hill fort in Kvam in Hordaland, which is particularly strange and exciting, I think. Really makes the imagination sizzle a little bit. But in Bjarkrem, in my own ancestral Rogaland, the wild hunt simply came from the neighboring parish, Olgor. And so, the name Oskorea was simply bastardized into Olgorsreya, aka the abominable chase from the village a few miles over. I have always sort of suspected that the Oskore provided opportunity to openly relish in biases that weren't always welcome in polite society, such as imagining dead members of neighboring communities dangling from your rafters, or inspiring the youth to run amok through the farms and scare the elderly but downright demonizing your neighboring village as the origin of this spectral terror itself kind of takes it to the next level, no? This specific ultra-local mutant of the wild hunt complex is actually a great case study by itself, because even in this tiny area, the stories about Olgosreya are internally inconsistent. Sometimes Olgosreya is just one big troll traveling through the night, while in other cases it's the more familiar collective of subterranean spirits, ghosts or goblins of ill repute, picking up whoever they find along the way and dropping them off either dead or alive in some offbeat location further down the track. Those who have listened to my ongoing series on Valhalla may note some similarities with the Indo-European warband of juvenile delinquents conjecturally called the Chorios, and of course, people have made similar comparisons for the past hundred years. But the festive, circus-like procession also reminds us of the carnival traditions found all over Europe, and for that matter, all over the world. The chthonic weight of the Oscaray and the feminine lead even reminds me of the maenads of Dionysus, who danced forward in bacchanalian ecstasy and tore apart whatever came in their way. <laughs> Fuck, one of you listeners even introduced me to the French-Canadian chasse-galerie, or the tale of the flying canoe, which was described to me thus. It is when you are far away in the north with your fellow lumberjacks and cannot go back home for Christmas. You make a pact with Satan and he will fly you there. But if the pact is broken, you're doomed to fly forever. An unenviable fate, if ever there was. 
An actual associated folk tradition is the variously named Yuletide mumming traditions of Scandinavia, sometimes called the Yulebuck or Yule Goat, in which either individuals or collectives of people disguise themselves and engage in behaviors that range from the mischievous to the lighthearted, but is no doubt related to similar processions found down on the continent also firmly associated with deep-sated notions of eldritch utterness and uncanny yuletide visitors. Now those I could get into as well, but I don't want to take up too much of your precious time now right before the holidays, because I'm sure that there's lots of things for you to do, provided you're even listening to this during the holidays. Besides, I need to leave something for future yuletide specials as well. Oh, one last thing. A lot of people go looking for the reason for the season, forgetting all about the season for the reason. If you've followed Brute Norse for a while, you probably know that I hustle hard to raise awareness about some of the coolest and most overlooked aspects of uh, pre-Christian religion, including its holidays, specifically this holiday. As old listeners already know, and new listeners would be wise to expect, people in pre-Christian Scandinavia used a completely different calendar system that determined things such as the dates of their seasonal celebrations and religious rituals. The same applied to the Yuletide feasts and sacrifices, which contrary to popular belief did not coincide with the winter solstice. Why people think this is so is a bit of a mystery, because none of our sources ever claims that it did. And if you really, really want to do something nice and special for the actual occasion when the pagan Norsemen most likely celebrated, I'm going to tell you how in just a second. I'm just warning you that it's going to be a bit of a mouthful but I will link to an article where I give you the complete rundown in the show notes below. So, according to a reconstructed lunisolar pre-ecclesiastical calendar system in use during, for example, the Viking Age, the Yuletide feast appears to have occurred on the full moon of the first lunar month following the winter solstice. What this means for this specific winter of 2020 going into 2021 is that the first new moon after the solstice begins on January 13th the full moon of which will occur around January 28th. In other words, that's the time to party. But do note, of course, that this will change every fucking year with the uh, lunar cycles and whatnot. So there you go. That's your starter pack for a Scandi Futurist Yuletide, which is fantastic because it means that you get to celebrate it twice. Now, I have no sponsors on this podcast and I have no immediate plans of getting any. This podcast is 100% crowdfunded. If you want to contribute to Brute Norse, the world's only Scandi Futures podcast, then you can do so by supporting me on Patreon. I can offer you a variety of different rewards, but most important, perhaps, is the access to the Brute Norse Discord community. That is by far the best way to get any updates about Brute Norse or any other adjacent projects, but also it is a fantastic venue just simply for the community that's been developing around it. 2020 has been a great year for Brute Norse and I've got a lot of grand plans for 2021, so stay tuned. Higher tier patrons also get physical rewards and all patrons get 20% off on shirts in the Brute Norse Teespring store. I just uploaded a phenomenal design, if I do say so myself, based on Realexicondes Germanischen Altertumskunde, which of course only the truest, most heavy-hitting motherfuckers will understand. And if you want to get up to speed, the best way is to join me here on the Brute Norse podcast, where we walk backwards into the future. But before I vanish from whence I came, I must wish you a happy Yuletide just as the old ones did. To raise a toast of Yuletide ale, consecrated, till Ors og Fridar, for bountiful year and peace. Peace out.